I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we take what looks like a giant heap of pages and magically turn it into the purest information and opinions that should it should have taken hours and hours and hours but instead we're here in just 90 minutes or less it's like if you went into the room of requirement and you said i require to just know what's in that book meanwhile i didn't know who killed dumbledore so i don't really know about the room of requirement anyway the podcast where every celebrity memoir is straight from the pages into your noggin like a shot of espresso and ashley do we have anyone to think this week Yes, I would like to thank Dipsy for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories. If you're looking to light a spark or heat things up, there's a story waiting for you. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. And thank you to the fun and challenging June's Journey game. Who doesn't love a good mystery? In the hidden object murder mystery game June's Journey, you'll awaken your inner sleuth and you'll step right into the thrilling adventure Set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. And do you want to tell them? You guys, we are shifting the wormhole. Like a traveling circus, we are on the move, baby. And we have found a new home on an app called Geneva. It is on desktop and mobile. It is a place where we can kind of sprawl out in the wormhole. I think Facebook gives us not a ton of space to stretch our legs. The Facebook wormhole will still exist, but in Geneva, there's so much space for many conversations, including an upcoming non-celebrity memoir book club where we will be having book club meetings with y'all. Stay tuned for information on that. We get to receive all your DMs with thoughts. And we're always like, these thoughts should be seen by millions, not just by me and Ashley. We're like, what if it was an actual discussion and not just us talking at you? Yeah, we're really excited to get you guys in the mix. You guys can form your communities. You guys can talk about books. We can do more than celebrity memoirs. I think this is going to be down the line, but the first one is going to be a book that a lot of you have asked us to read, but I didn't feel fit into our purview. I'm so excited. We're going to bring on experts. We're really going to make it as good as we humanly possibly can for you guys. And I can't wait to share it with you. It'll be in 2023 in January. But until then, you can go to Geneva right now. Ashley built out our little homepage. It's very cute. We have space for like recommendations because you guys are always like, what other podcasts, what other books, what other blah, 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 blah. If you watch a TV show and you think, I would love to discuss this TV show with the worms. Or if you listen to a new album and you think, oh, this is an album I would love to chat to worms about. There's little channels for you to have different types of discussions. Local worms can coordinate there. Also, if you guys want to have conversations about the episodes of our podcast. And it's just like a much better community builder. And we're really excited. We specifically picked Geneva because we felt that as a platform, it's much more conducive to kindness and community building and not as maybe hateful as some of the other anonymous message boards. There is also an invite link in the show notes this week. And of course, we'll post it on Instagram stories and put the link in our bio on all of the social media platforms. So we're just really excited because like one thing we love is the community and like even the meetups we've been doing, they've been going so amazing. And I know a lot of people have actually been getting drinks and dinner after meeting each other before the shows. We want to make it more accessible to everybody all the time. 
we can't get to every city, of course, but the internet can. So we're so excited. I hope you guys join. I hope you guys mingle. I hope you guys have fun. And there's a lot in store. Also, if you get into our Geneva home and you think, well, a channel for this would actually be quite nice, then there's a channel to make a suggestion for other channels. We love feedback. I hope it warms your hearts and brings you joy. Yeah, at least one of your four worm hearts, I hope, feels a little bit of a smoosh that day. Anything else, Ashley? Next week we will be announcing new merch. So just stay tuned for it. I just want to start the pitter patter now. And oh my God, wait, we have a big announcement next week too. So come back to that episode. More live shows. Okay. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) it's so excited. Anyway, besides all of this, a lot of news up front. I hope we haven't front loaded them with information. I hope you guys had a pen and paper. (laughs) I hope everyone was taking notes. Claire, if Mm -hmm. you were writing a memoir about your week, what would last week's chapter title be? I think it would be called No Longer in the Valley per Giselle Bund Chen. I, unlike her, am having the time of my life in my relationship to you. We were in Boston last week and we were just having the time of our lives and we were laughing and we were having fun. And I feel like it was just like when we fell in love many years ago before we got bogged down by the podcasts and the children and the bills. (laughs) Are you talking about bug as a bog? (laughs) I'm trying to take a moment to have gratitude for your friendships. I feel like it's, easy to be only obsessed with your romantic relationships, but like taking stock in your friendships. I don't know that very often you're like, wow, my friendships are going really good right now. And I'm not talking about all of them. I'm only talking about you because you guys know I have other friends. Unfortunately, they can't all be Ashley, but as two people who have really worked through some stuff, I was just like, look at us. We're taking things in stride. We're having fun. I feel like we're generally being pretty kind to one another when either of us makes a mistake. And I will say we are planning on doing a Bitchnesses 2.0 next summer. So we might get a divorce. (laughs) But I would love to take a moment and say, well, look at us. We made it. I hope that if we ever break up, this week is the moments I look back on and say, where did it go wrong? Well, it went wrong before this and I can tell where it'll go wrong. We should not be trying to make another film together. No, it'll be so, you guys, it's going to be really funny. It's going to be stunt focused. (laughs) No, it will not. It's, that's not in our capabilities. Anyway, I hope we have another great spring before we break up next summer. And also Boston was so fun. Thank you to everybody who came. It was literally the greatest time in the world. People met up beforehand and I hope you guys enjoyed that. If anybody has feedback on the meetup, we want to make them as good as possible for the cities down the line. Thank you to everyone who showed up. Thank you so much to everybody who waited in line to meet us. And like, it was such an honor to get to meet you guys. And so exciting. I know a lot of you were like, we DM. And I'm like, now I can put a face to a avatar. I love you guys. It was so fun. Thank you to everyone who came to Boston. And thank you to everyone who's coming to New York. I know not everyone who wanted to come to New York got a ticket. We are coming back to New York bigger and better than ever soon. But anyway, I don't know. I just think things have been bad. And at this minute, they're good. And not everything's perfect. But I'm choosing to focus on what I'm grateful for, which is at the end of the day, I have a laugh with my friend. And that's all that matters. We laugh. We laugh so much. We do laugh. Oh, do we laugh? Sorry if you sat next to us on the Amtrak. We were obnoxious. (laughs) Ashley, if you were a celebrity and last week was your memoir, what would you call that chapter? I would say it feels like Good laid plans lead to good results. Oh, yeah. Last week you said you were going to start making plans with people. How's that going? Really good. No way. <laughs> I've had a really fun time. The plans that I've been making have been plans that I've wanted to do for a long time that really pushed me out of my comfort zone. Like me and my friend went to a bar with the ex- purpose of each of us had to hit on three people. We didn't really, but like we had a really (laughs) fun night and I feel like it kind of unshrouded me and made me feel prepared to kind of put myself out there and just take more personal life risks. 
that will lead to more fun. And then I feel like as a result, I've just felt loosier and goosier in my day to day life and happy. Well, that's great. I'm really excited. I'm proud of you, dude. That's hard, especially in a winter month where it's very easy to find an excuse not to go out. So we've talked about it, me and my friend, and we're like, we are going to put together a schedule of when we are going out and putting ourselves out there. And I think really forcing myself out of the nest is going to do a lot for my personal growth and also just levels of excitement. I feel like I hadn't been doing new things. So it is just like fun to be like, all right, I'm going to try something tonight. Anyway, should we get into this week's memoirist? Before that, I'd like to take a journey with you sure say where should we go where are we going we're going beyond the wand with tom felton who is tom felton you might ask i would ask the same thing he played draco malfoy a little known character in a little known series called harry potter he was born september 22nd 1987 so at present minute he is 35 which you know we think is a perfect age for a memoir i also do want to reveal how we feel because i think we've had a lot of trauma the two of us you and me the listener and me and ashley (laughs) and reading a lot of memoirs recently and i just want to let you guys know we like this one we like tom felton emma watson wrote the foreword and she loves him and i honestly trust her and so we do enjoy this memoir so you can like unclench your butt It's going to be an okay ride. There's not a lot here. It's not jam-packed, but what's here is light and feathery and nice. And I think it's a wonderful contrast to Matthew Perry. I think with Tom Felton, we find a man who is incredibly self-aware, who's done a lot of work on himself, who has a sense of relativity about his life and an understanding and comes from a place of gratitude and healing. And I really found that actually quite refreshing after Matthew Perry's book, whereas maybe Maybe coming from a different book, I'd find it cloying. And here I really appreciated the way that he truly respects and speaks highly of the people around him. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you for that because it shows your own growth. There's growth in this book. There's not a lot, but what there is is growth. And I really respect that. I think he chalks a lot of it up to just being a kid, which I appreciate. I think somebody else would be like, you don't understand. I was so damaged that I had to act out. I also, not to bring up Matthew Perry again. Just because we don't cover men that often and we're covering two back to back. There's a lot of Matthew Perry perpendicularity Obviously, we love gossip and we touched on this in the last book, but there was something very disgusting about the way Matthew Perry exploited anybody he had ever met for like a scintillating little page grabby read. And coming at this book where Tom speaks so highly of everyone around him, I really saw why that is a more mature and honorable and respectful way to be. And I appreciated it. So actually, thank you, Matthew Perry, for making the bar so low that just not being a dick to me was a welcome. Yeah, I mean, the name dropping in this book is obviously intense, but it's not in a way where you feel like he's throwing people under the bus for the sake of headlines. He is really respectful to people around him and he wants you to know that he's met these people and he respects them. So it starts with a foreword by Emma Watson. You know that person in your life who makes you feel seen? That person who is somehow a witness to all that unfolds? That person who knows, really knows what is happening to you and what you're going through without anything having to be said? For me, that person is Tom Felton. And so the rest of it is about how they met. It's never been romantic, but he has always really understood her and they've been very close and they've been very important to each other. And at the end, she says, I'm so glad that you have written this book and shared it with us. It's a delight and a gift. The world is lucky to have you. And I'm even luckier to have you as my friend. The other nice thing that she writes about Tom is that he just is Tom through and through. There's not a stage version, a famous version, a chilling out at home version. He just is himself. And I think that that is 
a rare quality in famous people. Sorry, this is my last time I'll do it. Uh, No promises. Who knows? (laughs) This is not the last time we're going to do it. But comparing this forward to Lisa Kudrow, who is like, at best I can say good for you, is interesting. I do believe that this is a forward written by somebody who loves the author compared to what Lisa Kudrow wrote. So he opens this book with just a story about a time when he was 14 years old and he was trying to shoplift porn from the local mall. Saucy. He got caught by the police or not the police, but the the mall security. So whatever that is. And they took a photo of him, a Polaroid and put it up. And he looks back and he's like, I'm so grateful. And I knew it even then that they did not call my mom or call Warner brothers. I tried very hard to be a regular teen In most respects, even despite everything that the future held, I think I managed it pretty well. But there's a fine line when you grow up in the public eye between being normal and being reckless. And he says, I crossed a line that Saturday afternoon, no doubt. And while the young Tom Felton was no Draco Malfoy, he was no saint either. Maybe that's what got me the part in the first place. I'll let you be the judge of that. I guess I just like that this story is so pointless, but he presents it with gravity where he's like, I crossed a line and all he did was shoplift a DVD. Who among us does not have a wet and wild eyeliner that belongs to a CVS? And at first when I read this, I rolled my eyes a little and then I thought, no, I actually think it's really sweet. He's done a couple things wrong that he chalks up to being a kid and he's ashamed of those things to the point where I'm like, forgive yourself. So he gets into his family and he's like my family is very different than the Malfoy family we were close-knit loving chaotic and supportive they were the very center of my early life he's the fourth of four brothers and the other three were all born within four years of each other so it was three and four years and then he was born six years later so he's not just the baby brother he's like the real runt of the pack yeah and they let him know it was like very present in their dynamic that he was the maggot Three older brothers to bully me with love. He gives them a ton of credit for keeping him grounded at a time when things could have gone off the rails. And I 100% believe that. I do think coming home every day to three older brothers that you love who are telling you that what you do doesn't mean shit will keep you humble. And it'll it'll make you angry, but in a way that you can never get too big for your britches. He also has a lot of compassion for how difficult it must have been for them to be like the three tough older brothers with this scrawny little brother who then that scrawny little brother becomes famous and they're Tom's brothers. Yeah, for the rest of their lives, they are Draco's older brothers and that's not something they signed up for. And one of his brothers was even a very successful carp fisherman. Well, let's get into it. We'll go through the brothers. Okay. So first was Jonathan, the eldest. And back in the day, it was he who first showed me by example that it was cool to have a passion for the arts. I love that he says, I learned an important informative lesson. It wasn't weird to do this stuff and it looked like fun, especially being a boy where he talks so much about British society being so buttoned up. Having the license from your oldest brother to explore artistic pursuits is important. Chris was the second oldest of the Felton foursome and would no more put on a pink leotard to pretend to be a fairy godmother than he would fly. There was a time in which in my eyes and in most people's eyes, I suppose, there seemed no doubt that Chris would become the most famous Felton. His claim to fame, he was one of England's most up and coming carp anglers, which as you know, a hot, hot ticket. <laughs> I thought that he was joking when he said he made the cover of Carp Talk and Big Carp Magazine several times. How could there be more than one carp dedicated magazine on the little island of England? I have literally never heard of a carp. I thought a carp was like a slang term for garbage fish. I thought a carp was just anything that you wouldn't eat. Like I said, I just learned it. Anyway, he says one minute he's known for being one of Britain's best fishermen. The next minute, everyone's calling him Draco Malfoy's brother and shouting on your broomstick, mate. Chris took it in stride, though. And thanks to Chris, I was a regular fixture at Burry Hill Fisheries in Surrey. And I even had a weekend job there in the very early days of Potter, where for 20 pounds a day, he would park the cars, but then be allowed to fish for free. 
what the hell was this child actor doing with a $20? He would get there at 6 a.m. to park cars. Also, why does a child with a job need a weekend job? <laughs> How old was he that he was parking cars? I guess he was just directing the cars. I think he was like, yeah, directing cars in a parking lot. Okay. But still very funny that he was like, well, I wanted to fish for free. It was like, buddy, you and Harry Potter money. You don't need anything for free. My third brother closest to me in age. And so in some ways, the brother with whom I shared most of my early life is Ash. Ash has a huge heart, my favorite sense of humor, and is one of the nicest guys in the world, but he suffered massively from big swings of emotion in his early teens to the extent that as he hit his adolescence, he stopped wanting to go to school or even leave the house. His constant feeling of not being quite happy with who he was meant he ended up spending long periods of time on closed hospital wards. And he says, for now, let's remember that such a predisposition exists among us and some problems are too difficult to outrun. They always catch up with you in the end. His teenage difficulties foreshadowed the mental health struggles of the remaining Felton brothers, myself included. So there you have it. The three older brothers, each of them close to me in different ways. I'm equally aware that each of them exerted a distinct influence over young Tom. Drink, the creativity and love of performance. Chris, a passion for the outdoors and a down-to-earth nature. Ash, a sense of humor and an early inkling that there is no light without shade. So then he explains who he was as a little kid. He was like super hyper, very passionate about everything, wanted to do a different activity every week. And he says he had a mother who absolutely loved and indulged every whim he had. If he wanted to learn violin, she would buy him a violin. If he wanted yo-yo, she would buy him a yo-yo, which caused friction in their family because his dad was quite frugal with it. They didn't necessarily have the money to be indulging every passion. So his mom would get several part-time jobs to indulge these behaviors. Indulge these behaviors. You make him sound like a pervert. In order for him to do the drug that we call art. <laughs> Bottom line, my mom is a huge reason I am where I am, even though she never pushed me in the direction of being an actor. I could have set my eyes on being a professional violinist or an ice hockey goalkeeper or an extreme yo-yoist. It wouldn't have mattered to her which activity I ended up pursuing. But one thing's for certain, whatever it was, mom would have helped me achieve it. So then his parents end up getting divorced and he doesn't care. Around the time of the first Harry Potter film, I remember my mom driving me to school and telling me, quite matter-of-factly, your father and I are getting a divorce. There was no big song and dance. It was classically British pragmatic moment. My parents' divorce didn't upset me like it might upset some other kids. I didn't want them to be living together and suffering just because they thought it was the right thing for me. If they were happier apart, that made perfect sense to me. So then he talks about his dad. He knew the value of a pound and I think was very concerned with his sons should too. He wanted us to learn and emulate his incredibly strong work ethic must have been strange for him when I started earning money of my own from acting at an early age without having to work for it as hard as he did. And then he goes on to be like, my dad didn't always show that he was proud of me. Sometimes he would like make remarks like after one of the Harry Potter movies who said, well, you weren't in it much, were you? It seemed harsh at the time. I now know that he was very proud of me. I also now know that it's a classic British male trait and that reluctance to express emotion and say what you really think. But even him, he goes on to appreciate and thank for making him independent. He was insistent that I should be encouraged to figure stuff out for myself. At the time, it seemed like indifference, but now I understand that it was a crucial part of my development. So that's his family. They were loving, complex, occasionally flawed, but always there for me. And beyond the basketballs and buffoonery, they went out of their way to provide me with the one thing I might easily have lacked as my life took an unusual turn. They provided me with a healthy dose of normality. He really is so appreciative of his family. I think there were moments of friction, obviously, but he really respects every single thing that his parents provided for him and the fact that they were silly. That's the other thing is we haven't gotten to those stories quite yet. And I don't know if we'll really dive into them because they're not that interesting, but his dad is a friggin' goof. So he gets into how he became an actor. And basically when he was little, one of his fledgling passions was drama camp. He went to a natural school for it. He wanted to drop out to move on to something else. 
And when his mom called to say, okay, he's not going to do drama class anymore. The drama teacher was like, but he must, he has such a natural ability for it. Like you must promise me to get him an agent in London. He will be so successful. And he's like, I didn't think I was. I just thought she was being dramatic, but it got into my head that I was like, could I be so successful? Yeah. He says I was born enthusiastic rather than talented. And then one day his mom got a piece of glass stuck in her foot and just kind of went on with it for a while and finally was like, okay, I need to get this glass handled in my foot. So she went to get it taken out and they were like, you need to take a week off of work. And because she had a week off work, she was like, I guess we'll go to London and check with those agents. Yeah. And he goes, he gets his photo taken and they're like, thanks. See you later. A few weeks later, he gets a call and he's been cast in a huge commercial in the United States for an insurance company. That took like three weeks to film. The premise was it was him and a grandfather taking a train all across America. So they got to go to LA, New York, Las Vegas, and Miami or something. It was a really nice little trip. He said it was incredible because when they weren't filming, he would just get to sit in paid for hotel rooms and watch cartoons and order room service. And he was like, I would just eat French fries and watch TV. It was the best ever. When he got back to school, nobody really cared about the experience. I wanted to tell them the important stuff, the room service, the Cartoon Network, and yes, the red puffer jacket. Pretty quickly, however, a hard truth presented itself. Literally, nobody cared. Then he starts talking about more auditions. He auditioned a lot. He says auditions as an adult can be a pretty brutal experience. And believe me, I've had my share. The bad ones aren't those when you walk into an audition room and can't stop farting. Yes, it happened. The bad ones are when you realize that the person making the decision hasn't looked you in the eye from the moment you entered. How much farting do you think happened? (laughs) Do you think the auditioner at any moment was like, what's up with Draco Malfoy getting the toots? And then he goes back to talking about auditions as a kid and how it's less script related and like less understanding the role and more them asking you to just live in a moment. And the kids who can be in that moment are the kids who tend to get it. He talks about how you shouldn't really make a decision before you've entered that room and been directed because you end up stiff in your execution. He gives the example of a woman, not a woman. What am I talking about? A <laughs> girl, like an 11 year old, an 11 year old. So it's him and this girl who I think it's down to the two of them. And the direction in the audition room is to open a door and act surprised by who you see. It's going to be Mr. Bean. And the little girl goes, may I faint? And they were like, we'd prefer if you didn't. She looked a bit crestfallen, but she nodded and the scene started. We both mimed opening the door. And then before I could react at all, and at the very top of her voice, the kooky girl inexplicably screamed, Mother Goose! And she hit the floor like a toppled tree. That girl, I think, had decided long before she entered the audition room that she was going to hit the deck, and it did her no favors. When you least expected, Ashley, when we were in our most important meeting, or better yet, walking across a street where we do not have the light, I'm just going to scream, Mother Goose! And BAM! I'm going down. And you'll just have to deal with it. I guess I will. (laughs) So he's going to a lot of auditions. It doesn't seem to get him down when he doesn't get it. And then he gets one big role. It's The Borrowers. I don't really know this thing. Remember The Borrowers? I actually don't. I don't remember. It's about the little mice who live in the house and they borrow things from the house. Thievery. (laughs) They borrow, Claire. They return? Borrowing. They return? I guess if you were to gut the house and see what's in the walls, you'd find your thimble. It's little things because they're little mice. Anyway, so he plays a little mouse. That's cute. One of the borrowers. There's a couple big actors who are in this movie with him. He has a good experience. He respects them. It's the first time that he's on a project where after it ends, he feels sad. He also doesn't really seem to understand what's going on. Like he knows he likes it and enjoys it, but he says, I had no real sense as a kid that spending time on a film set was anything out of the ordinary. More than once, I had to beg my mom to let me finish a game of footy when she was hassling me to get into the car to go to a studio. 
like he enjoyed it and he loved the people, but nobody at his school life really seemed to care and he could tell it wasn't winning him any friends. So he kind of just kept the two parts of himself very separate. And it was just something that he happened to do. So after the borrowers wrapped filming, he was getting a wig cut out and he just like all of a sudden realized that he was never going back to that set. So he starts bawling and he says that the hair and makeup lady nicked him with the scissors just so he had an excuse to cry. And he explains, I didn't appreciate it in that moment, but my tears were teaching me another important lesson. An audience can go back and watch a film any number of times they want. It's always there for them. For the cast and crew, the relationship with the film is more complex. The magic is in the making. I think that's really interesting. That's sweet. He also talks about getting the sillies on set. Just being a nine-year-old boy who's prone to naughtiness. I mean, he's not a bad kid, but he does like to cut up. He says, when the teacher tells a certain kind of child to be quiet, it can ignite a spark of naughtiness. And I probably had more of that particular spark than most. I had a tendency to dissolve into fits of laughter just before the camera rolled. Everyone shouting quiet was enough to set me off. Man, I get it. Sometimes when people want you to be serious, you want to be silly. And the seriousness makes you be sillier. Want something is so silly to you when you have the sillies, it will be silly forever. And so if quiet on the set makes you laugh a lot, it's just going to escalate. And that is dangerous. Okay, so the next chapter is about the borrower's premiere where boy oh boy does the fam keep him humble <laughs> they're funny and actually Emma Watson talks about them in her forward she's like he has a great family and his mom just has so much love in her heart it's like there was too many boys for a famous one to matter so at the borrower's premiere at the cocktail reception his brother Jenk had way too much to drink rushed off to the bathroom before the movie even started the dad followed him to make sure he was okay he spent the entire movie barfing then at the after party his other brother Chris had way too much to drink got in the bounce house and threw up on a bunch of kids and then the other brother also got in the bounce house and like kicked a little kid in the face all in all, I think it's fair to say that the behavior of the Felton brothers that evening was at best mixed, but I didn't let it upset me. I just enjoyed the evening for what it was. After all, it wasn't like I had any big hopes of being an actor, even more unlikely a movie star. I'd had my moment in the sun and the chances were that this would be my first and last film premiere. What an interesting perspective for a child. <laughs> I do think he's just like, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. It all just felt so random. I mean, he really stands by the randomness of it. He treats being cast in a movie the way you would treat if like your friend's dad had season tickets to something and so you got to go one time. So then he makes a movie called Anna and the King with Jodie Foster. And for this movie, he has to go to Malaysia for four months. And this definitely gets hard on him. Being isolated on the other side of the country without many other children that spoke the same language as him, he started to kind of lose power passion. I remember a handful of mornings spent crying, wailing that I didn't want to do it anymore. I remember sweating my butt off in a six-piece linen suit that took an hour to put on and take off. And I remember tearfully begging to be allowed to go home. But then by the afternoon, I'd have calmed down and everything would be okay again. So until he was about 11, he had gone to a very fancy posh school that his grandparents had paid for because it was important to them that they go to primary, like a fancy primary school to get the sense of academics. So when he's 12 in about seventh grade, they call it grade seven, but I can see through that shit. I know what they mean. <laughs> you can't speak your garbledygook to me. <laughs> he goes to the school called Howard of Effingham. For the first time, I saw students talk back to the teachers, practically unheard of at Cranmore. I saw kids smoking on school premises and girls being sent home because their skirts were too short. I had no idea what the future held for me, of course, but to this day, I think my life could have been very different if I hadn't switched schools. It gave me another healthy dose of normality. I'd grown up thinking that the way to get on in the world was by being a brain box. 
I was beginning to learn that a far more important and effective skill is the ability to communicate with people from all walks of life. I like that. Yeah, you could be a brain box. Sure. Many of us have always wanted to be brain boxes. Yeah, of course you can run around being a brain box, but the real way to succeed is like talking to people. So he says also the cheekiness that had been cute when he was young was starting to wear off. There comes a time though, as adolescence hits, that cheekiness develops into something else. I became a bit of a pain in the arse or a bit of a reprobate. Don't get me wrong. I lived in a pleasant part of Surrey and as the reprobates went, I was quite a posh one. Really, I was just doing my best to fit in my new environment, just doing my best to be ordinary. And he says like they did not give a shit about him. His new friends were much more interested in skateboarding than filming. If anything, it made him stand out a bit, which was never good when you're in middle school. He said for the most part, he was a pretty ordinary kid and he had no intention for acting to become that serious in his life. It was just like a cool thing that he'd done a bit. Then he gets the Harry Potter audition and he was like, sure, another audition. He goes and he had no idea this was an open call. So he was very shocked by the number of people there and by the way the audition went. It wasn't like here, read these lines to a casting director. They were grouping kids in various situations and just watching them interact. He points out very validly when you're working with so many young kids is that you just have to find kids who are that character and can operate with that vibe because they're not going to be genius actors. (laughs) So luckily, he was already a little bit of a pisser. I think that that's the British term. And at one point, Chris Columbus, who was the director of the first two Harry Potters and helping with casting, met everybody. And he like comes up to Tom and he's like, what's your favorite part about Harry Potter? And Tom had actually never read Harry Potter before and he didn't know anything about it. So he just goes, same as him, mate. Can't wait to see those little Gringotts. There is a heavy pause. You mean you're looking forward to seeing Gringotts, the bank, Columbus said. Oh, yeah, I blagged quickly. The bank, can't wait. And then later, Columbus leaves and goes, you guys just hang out here. Nobody's going to be filming you. Just do what you want to do. It was, of course, a bit of a scam. The cameras were whirling and a huge fluffy boom mic hung over the room. I'd been on sets before. I could tell what was going on and I felt pretty cocky about it. I certainly didn't feel inclined to fall into their trap. A young, curious girl approached me. She had brown fizzy hair and couldn't have been more than nine years old. She pointed to the boom mic. What's that? She asked. I glanced up, world weary and slightly full of myself. I might have even sneered a little. What's what? That. It means they're recording us, obviously. I turned my back on her and wandered off, leaving the little girl to gaze wide-eyed around the room. I later found out that her name was Emma Watson. The fact that he was bullshitting, not doing his homework, kind of a bitch. They were like, that's Draco. He thinks he didn't make it into the movie because while he's on winter vacation, they see an article in the newspaper, Harry Potter cast revealed, and it's Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant, and Emma Watson, the big three. And he's like, all right, well, that's that. Cool times. What's next? Then he's playing soccer with his buddy and his mom calls and is like, guess what? You're in the movie. And he's like, oh, okay, I'm playing soccer. So he gets to the table read of Harry Potter. And this is obviously a grander scale film than he's ever made before. And he just kind of talks about how amazing so many of the cast were. He talks about the guy who played Hagrid was so good at working with children. Looking at it through these eyes, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's crazy that the world's most acclaimed actors were working with nine year olds who were the stars (laughs) who had never been on a movie set before. And they were there for so long, for so many hours. It really became a whole second community to these kids that raised them and hearing which adults really understood how to work with children was interesting and so one of them was Hagrid and the other one was Rick Mayall who I don't know but I guess was pretty famous in England and played Peeves the ghost who he then found out was entirely cut out of the film he talks about the way that some of these characters would really just lighten the mood and make it feel fun some of these very successful older actors would just kind of make the kids comfortable and say like listen we're not solving world hunger we're making a movie let's just vibe so then he just talks about how his grandfather came with him on 
Sunset and was one of his original chaperones. He was actually a professor and actually had a long beard and they let him be one of the wizards in the background. And he's like, that's unheard of. Yeah, he says none of the other family members were thrown into the movie, but because his grandpa had such a wizardly vibe, they made him a featured extra as one of Hogwarts's professors. So you can see him in the big dining scenes sitting at the end of the professor's table. His grandpa also was really helpful in helping him develop the Draco Malfoy sneer. I think as a human, his grandfather was all about work ethic and practice and poise and coming prepared. And he was a bit horrified that Tom's mom never helped him learn lines. Sometimes Tom didn't know his lines at all. It was very much like a Tom driven thing. Or even if it wasn't Tom driven, they were not stage momming him at all. They never prepped him. And I think his grandfather was nonplussed with the idea that this little boy was showing up to a job not prepared. So he was like, you work in the mirror, you think about something that makes you mad and you sneer and you learn how to control your face and you figure out how to do your lines good. And thank God, because Potter or whatever, say it. Potter. No, that's Potter. (laughs) Harry Potter. (laughs) Potter. (laughs) Is that because you hear the sneer in that? Potter. Potter. We are not actors. I don't have a grandpa. (laughs) Nobody taught me. Anyway, so he helped out. He talks about just the hijinks on set. It was just a set full of kids. So every now and then things would go wild. He says Christopher Columbus, the director, was really great at getting a performance out of kids. There were a lot of things that he would set up to just get organic reactions from them. He was really supportive and congratulatory of great performances. Instead of hitting them with negativity, he would hit them with like, that was an incredible take. And so then they would strive to hit that take again instead of getting in their heads. It seemed like what he was really great at too was putting the children in situations where the environment demanded of them the performance that was needed. And so he talks about how they weren't allowed to see the Great Hall until it was time for rolling. So when all the kids walked in, they were genuinely organically in awe. And that's how he got that expression. And of course, because he picked Tom Felton, because Tom Felton thought he was better than everybody and cooler because he had these older brothers. So he had this kind of like, this is for babies attitude. He's like, my personality was to go in and be like kind of impressed, but also not wanting to see that I was impressed, which is exactly how Draco was supposed to be played. So Chris Columbus had a brilliance for casting it and getting the performances out of little idiot babies. He was saying later on, everyone became a lot closer, but earlier in shooting, the age difference mattered a lot. So he did think he was so superior to Emma Watson, who was nine when he was 12, because the difference between a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old is enormous. And then later they ended up obviously becoming very close. All the kids, because of shooting schedules, ended up hanging out with the people you're filming with. And so the people you're filming with tend to be your friends. So like the little Slytherin click actually did get quite close and would feel very awkward around the Gryffindor kids because they didn't film together that often and that's who they were hanging out with. And so him and what is it, Goyle and Gilful or whatever? Draco, Crab and Goyle. Thank you. They actually did become very good friends and they had all been cast for being a bit mischievous. And so he talks about like the first time they were ever dressed up. He stomped on the other kid's hot chocolate, not knowing it was full of hot chocolate and exploded and got on like every child in a 12 foot radius. I mean, it is just funny thinking about this billion dollar film. No matter how much money you pour into something, you can't stop a 12 year old from being an idiot. Just an absolute dingbat. Ain't that the truth? Also, they weren't allowed to do anything for 10 years. You couldn't skateboard. You couldn't ski. You couldn't ever get hurt because it could hold up filming. And it's just so funny trying to keep an 11, 12, 13 year old from doing something that'll hurt them because they figured out a way to hurt themselves with everything in the world. Yeah, he says that he had a scene that had to get rearranged because he was playing with friends and one of them threw, I think, a remote control at his head. He talks about the lessons he learned from people on set quite a lot throughout this book. He talks about Alan Rickman, who played Snape, being a really good example for him in how to create an experience for Harry Potter 
fans because his instinct when he met kids who were visiting the set was to be like, I'm not like Draco. I'm nice. Welcome to the set. Happy to have you here. And then he would see Snape approach this group of kids and kind of be mean to them. And the delight they got, he was like, oh, I have the power to create an experience by just being Draco at them. Those lessons really stuck with him, not putting himself first, but putting the experience first for the people that need it. I learned as the years progressed that some people find it difficult to distinguish between fact and fiction, between fantasy and reality. Sometimes that could be trying, but I wish I'd had Alan's confidence to remain in character during some of those meet and greets in Livston Studios. There's no doubt that in doing so, he brightened many a day. Something that I do find very interesting about this book, and this book is not the most tantalizing, drama-filled, interesting journey of all time, but I do think his perspective on fame is interesting and very honest and thoughtful. And I think one of the things he's able to do very well that it makes me trust him as a narrator is he has been able to figure out a way to appreciate the role he was given and understand what it means to the fans genuinely. And I think most people in his position become very resentful of their roles. And I think he's in a unique position where it's like, it didn't take over his life entirely. He's not like Emma Watson. He's not like Daniel Radcliffe, which he gets to later. But also he could have just been this one thing. And maybe even if he had become just Draco for the rest of his life, he's able to say, and how lucky am I? And you know what? If it means everything to these people that when they meet me, they think I'm Draco, they can have that because I understand it doesn't take from me. I've been important to them and I should honor that. And I think that that's a very mature, difficult place to get to within yourself. I think that he really feels, and he says several times about this book that anyone could have been Draco. He's like, I wasn't that talented. I was a kid. They could have put anyone in that role and dyed their hair blonde. And it was lucky that it was me. When your entire being becomes known to people as one thing, that is very hard. We talk all the time about shedding who you were at 12. And this idea that to the whole fucking world, every time you leave your house, you're a character that you played before you even hit puberty. That is very hard. But the truth of the matter is there is literally no way to change that once that's already your experience. And so the way that he's able to like come at it with not anger, but appreciation and understanding makes me trust everything else he says, because that is like such a difficult place to get to. I think a lot of people kind of ignore that first casting. And instead, we just kind of pick up in the role that made them notable as a kid. And for him, there are good things and bad things that come with it. And he's very capable of addressing the positives and negatives. But I think a lot of people carry with them the perspective coming from the lens of the negatives. Whereas he comes at it from the lens of the positives where it's like, it put me on the map. I'm able to create something that so many people revel in. He talks later in the book about how everyone in the world is just looking for community. And I was part of something that allowed that community to prosper. I think that's really beautiful. He talks about the first premiere of Harry Potter and having a little boy come up to him and be like, why are you so mean to Harry? And he's like, I'm not literally being mean to Harry Potter. But then he realizes when adults start doing it, that this is just his truth. And he says... After the release of the first film, I started to receive fan mail via the studio. These days, fans interact on social media, but back then, physical letters was a thing. Almost immediately, I started to receive stacks of them. And so he starts to talk about fame, and it starts off with just piles of letters, and then it becomes the piles of letters that are unmanageable, and he literally can't respond to. And then it becomes kind of crazy people. It becomes this family from Spain that shows up at his school one day just looking for him. It becomes this woman who follows him everywhere. Finally, he ends up with a story about being in an airport, and a group of schoolgirls notice who he is, and it just becomes this domino effect of everybody in the airport is scrambling to get a photo with him, and he no longer feels safe. And he says... He's learned how to handle it. It was an unusual situation, but a reminder of the importance of these stories and films that people have had in people's lives. As the actor who played Draco Malfoy, I see myself as a placeholder in people's memories. 
Seeing me transports them to a different time and place in the same way that listening to a particular song can be evocative of something else. I've met with fans who have explained that the books and the films have helped them through hard times. It's a humbling truth to hear. I think the the broadest criticism I have of this book is that he sings the praises of J.K. Rowling regularly. And like without caveat. I think it'd be one thing if he said she created something that changed my entire life and changed a lot of people's lives. I just wish that she didn't have such problematic beliefs that she won't shut the fuck up about. And in this section, he says, Joe Rowling once said that her most gratifying moments come when she learns that her work has helped someone get through a difficult moment in their life. And I agree. So not knowing what we know about JK Rowling, that would be a nice thought. But if her gratifying moments come from when she learns that she's helped someone get through a difficult moment in their life, I wish she would acknowledge that she's created many difficult moments in people's lives. I think since Harry Potter has ended, she's done quite a bit to hurt people and broadcast really damaging beliefs. And I kind of wish he'd said something about it. And I'm talking about her view on trans people. So then he gets into what's it like to fly a broomstick. This is just technicality movie magic stuff. It's a green screen. It's a bike seat on a pole. And he talks about shooting Quidditch matches when they have a room that was just full green screen. They would hang tennis balls to give you eyeline markers. And him and Daniel Radcliffe, when they were shooting Quidditch scenes, would get to put little pictures on their eyeline tennis balls. And Daniel Radcliffe put Cameron Diaz on his tennis ball and Draco Tom put a carp. He loves carp. I don't think we can overstate it. He loves catching carp. I think that as a seeker, reaching out and grabbing a carp is not how you fish. But maybe I'm wrong because I didn't even know what a carp was. Then he gets into the bigger stunts. Obviously, Harry Potter was very stunt heavy. Him and Daniel Radcliffe shared a stunt double for most of shooting. If you pay attention to Harry Potter stuff, you know that that stunt double, his name was Holmesy, and he did suffer an accident during shooting that left him paralyzed from the waist down. And I think that Draco, (laughs) I don't know why I keep calling him Draco. It's hard because who is Tom Felton? I had never heard of those words before this book. (laughs) So Tom Felton, I think, does do a really good job of celebrating his accomplishments and his life. Currently, he's a constant reminder to me that stunt artists on film sets deserve a great deal more credit than they receive. The actors might get all the adulation, but so often it's the stunt artists that make us look good and Holmesy is the best of them. He is a beacon of light. I just think that that's really nice that he takes the time to celebrate Holmesy. Then he gets into his life while shooting Harry Potter. He was one week on, one week off, and he never left regular school. So he was shooting Harry Potter every other week and then just going to regular high school in between. And he says it had its ups and downs. On one hand, it allowed him to keep his foot in a world of normalcy, but it also led to some bullying. He says it was not cool to be Draco. He would definitely get called a broomstick prick. But he also said, so perhaps I overcompensated a little bit. I acted up. My prepubescent cheekiness developed into something more disruptive. The trouble is, as you get older, the less disarming your cheekiness becomes. I can now see that to disappear filming for weeks at a time before rocking up at a school with a bit of an attitude almost certainly would have come across as arrogant to teachers. They afforded me no special treatment. Quite the opposite. He also says that one time he was out with some friends when a big group of bigger, older guys started approaching them and they realized that he was, in fact, Draco Malfoy. And he's like, things were about to get extremely bad. And then his brother just appears out of nowhere. Because he had been fishing and his brother came to fish. Luckily, you're never far from a friend when you're fishing. Put that on a freaking hat, huh? (laughs) But he talks about what happens when you become famous like that. I developed a kind of spidey sense, an inbuilt radar that told me that I was about to be recognized and a situation had the potential to kick off. 
off. Sometimes he just has to leave events because he can tell, are you? And the dominoes would start to fall and my evening would take a distinct turn for the worse. As I said, it was not cool to be Draco. But then he says, because of my family and my school and my teachers, I got to have the regular rough and tumble of a normal childhood. I'd have been a very different person if I hadn't been given the opportunity to experience the ups and downs of a normal life alongside the madness and being part of Harry Potter. As it was, I had the best of both worlds. I think that perspective right there, so many of our memoirists, specifically our male memoirists, would be like, you don't understand. I had the worst of everything, blah, blah, blah. This was awful. This was awful. I really appreciate that Tom is like, hey, I made a shit ton of money and I had a lot of doors open up for me and I also got to, you know, go fishing with my brother sometimes. Yeah, people bullied him. People didn't think Draco was cool. I cannot imagine he was the worst bullied person in school though. Like that is just part of being alive. It is part of being alive and I think it's really impressive that he's able to look at it and say, no, things overall were actually really great. Because like you said, there are a lot of male memoirists, especially obviously women too, but a lot of men who take every negative thing and say nothing worse could have happened to anyone. It's not possible. So these next couple chapters are kind of an extended acknowledgement section, and we're going to skip a handful of them. Just know that he loves and respects everybody he's ever worked with. But I know you guys want to hear about Hermione, a.k.a. Emma Watson. A.k.a. Hermione. Draco and Hermione, a.k.a. the chicken oh, and the duck. I did not get what the dra was for. Hermione. Draco Draco. Hermione, got it. Yeah, clever. Whether you're craving a good mystery or you just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. Sit back, relax, and search for hidden clues to solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid scenes. If you are in search of a good whodunit, you will love June's Journey. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and cover her family's many secrets. You'll need to find objects devilishly hidden in intricate scenes full of tiny little details before the timer runs out. A variety of game modes and puzzles await. I have played hours and hours of June's Journey, and I'm so happy that there are constantly new scenes and new mysteries to uncover. Sometimes I'm in the mood to look at my phone for, honestly, years, but social media, it gets a bit much, so diving into a game of June's Journey is the perfect way to relax. There's a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. I have been on a real self-care journey lately, but aside from yoga and journaling, how often are you taking care of your needs? Transport your mind to a world where you can relax and treat yourself to your deepest desires with Dipsy. Self-care has never sounded better. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. You can find stories about an intriguing coworker, hooking up with a hot yoga instructor, someone with a sexy accent. It's all there. There's new content released every single week. So between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy stories you can read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or heat things up with a partner. I love that Dipsy has added stories that you can read. Sometimes I like to read it myself and use a voice in my head. Sometimes I love that Dipsy has those voices in place for me. There is a story on Dipsy for everyone and every situation. Claire and I have pretty different tastes, and we are both able to find something pretty steamy on Dipsy. Dipsy is offering you an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash worm. Dipsy stories.com slash worm. So first he takes the time to be like, here's what it's like to be Emma Watson and acknowledge that it's way worse to be her than him. I suggest we go out for the day. It sounds like a small thing, right? Just a day hanging out on the beach with an old friend, but it's not a small thing for Emma. I'm not sure it's something that Emma would ever really do without some encouragement. And you can see why the moment you step out of the door. 
Emma takes it all in stride. She's had this kind of reaction since she was a teen. I was able to live something of a normal life alongside my Hogwarts career. But for Emma, that was near impossible. So he talks about like they go out and people start turning their faces. At first, people are astonished. Then they're excited. They shout Emma's name. They shout Hermione's name. Eventually, they start to chase us along the boardwalk. They sit down at the bar where he goes almost every day, as you'll see later. And one of the guys who works there tries to give her his CD of music just to see if she can hand it to somebody important. If every time you left your fucking house, you had to take somebody's shitty CD, I would stop leaving the house. I understand. Yeah. He backs it up to some of their early interactions. Aside from when he was mean to her at the audition, they had another kind of negative experience early on where Emma Watson made a dance and wanted to perform it for the other actors in her dressing room one day at Harry Potter and him and the other Slytherin boys kind of made fun of her. They weren't very respectful of her dance performance. And he carries this with him with so much shame. He's so embarrassed by the way he acted as a kid, which when you're a 12 year old boy at lunch being forced to go watch a nine year old girl do her made up dance, like, of course, you're kind of a dick. He really takes time to be like, I feel so bad because things were always going to be the worst for her. Like things were always going to be the hardest for her. Not only was she the only girl in our kind of main cast group, which made it worse because all the boys have their 12 year old boy humor. And she was a nine year old girl who had to just join in or get out. So Gina Davis's whole thing about, you know, the Gina Davis Institute for gender equality and media. She's like, why is it whenever there's just a random background character, people tend to draw it male. Why was there only one girl in the whole school? I mean, there wasn't, there was a couple others, but they were not as important. There was like Luna, people like that. But most of the secondary characters were boys. They were all like Weasleys. And then there was the Slytherin boys, the Slytherin boys, Seamus. Anyway, he talks about the guys that played like Neville Longbottom and Dean Thomas and all these other characters. There were not a lot of women. So he talks about feeling bad that Emma was part of this group of boys being rowdy boys. And then he says she kept up well, but it still must have sucked. And then he takes the time to really acknowledge how hard it must have been for her to be a woman growing up in the spotlight as opposed to boys growing up in the spotlight because the media is not nice to girls. They are unfairly sexualized in the media and beyond. They are judged on their appearance and any hint of assertiveness raises an eyebrow that wouldn't happen if it came from a guy. I wonder what would have happened if somebody had the ability to look into the future and tell nine-year-old Emma what it held. That this thing she'd sign up for would be with her for the rest of her life. That she would never be able to get away from it. That she would be hounded forever. Would she still have done it? Maybe, but maybe not. And so he talks about that moment when he laughed at her when she did her dance performance. The last thing she needed in an environment that should have been and normally was a safe and friendly and familial was Josh and me laughing at her dance. That's why I feel ashamed by my memory of our behavior. And that's why I'm glad that our friendship did not flounder on the rocks of my insensitivity, but became something deeper, a touchstone for both of our lives. I know that this is like not that impressive of a thing to say, but based on what we've read, the standards that we have to hold him up against, it made me want to like stand up and clap. I was like, good job. Did and I promise not to do this? Yeah. But they had the exact same amount of time together that Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry had together. And all Matthew Perry had to say about Jennifer Aniston was that she never fucked him. And look what Tom Felton has to say about Emma. And he says, yeah, we had crushes on each other. She had a crush on me first. And then I got a girlfriend. And, you know, there was always something special. But now we're just genuinely friends. And he has nothing but respect for her. And I genuinely believe that. And the way he takes the time to really acknowledge the difficulties that she must have gone through without bugging too far into her business, without throwing her under the bus, without exploiting her. He just gives a nod of acknowledgement to what her life must have been like 
it's not that fucking hard to respect a woman. <laughs> then he goes on to tell the story about when she was 12 and he was 15, people were coming to set and watching them and she kind of turned away and people were reading it as rude, which is like so crazy to accuse a 12 year old of being rude to complete strangers. But he went over to her and he's like, look, I'm going to explain to you what I learned from Alan Rickman, basically, which is if you engage with these people, they're here because they love you. Try not to be afraid. The truth was she was a 12 year old girl and she was a terrified. I don't think she fully understood why everybody was so interested in her. And so he explains that to her and then she's able to go out and meet everybody and it helps her start to deal with the fame. And later, the head of the set or whatever, David Heyman, told me that was one of the moments he saw I was growing up from an arrogant kid to a more thoughtful young adult. And I believe that it helped Emma come to terms just a little with the strangeness of the life she found herself living. In a way, we both helped each other grow somewhat that day. And I think that's really sweet. I think that's so sweet. He then goes on to say, like, she was one of the only people he actually hung out with outside of the Harry Potter cast and crew, like outside of Harry Potter set. One time they went for a walk and Emma said something that will always remain with me. I've always known I was a duck, but I spent my whole life being told I was a chicken. Every time I try to say quack, the world tells me that I have to say cluck. I even started believing that I was a chicken and not a duck. Then we started hanging out and I found somebody else who quacked. And that's when I thought to hell with them. I really am a duck. He goes to anybody else. Emma's story about chicken and duck might've sound like gobbledygook. Not to me. I understood exactly what she meant. Because he's also a duck. She meant that we were kindred spirits, that we understand each other and that we have helped each other make sense of ourselves and our lives. We've been quacking ever since. So then he talks about the Weasleys. Arthur Weasley, who he had worked with on The Borrowers, Mark Williams, had a really great perspective on reminding all the kids we're not doing anything important. We're just making films. It's okay to have fun in the process. He loves the Weasleys. They're a real hoot. Rupert is exactly who you think he would be. He has the exact same personality on and off, except for that he said he got kind of quieter and more reserved as he got older, which is understandable, especially with success. But he's like, we also both loved spending our money on goofy shit and like our taste did not change as we got money. And so he says, I bought a dog. He bought a llama two actually, which in a couple of years turned into 16 llamas mate enthusiastically. He bought a nice set of wheels just as I did. But whereas I got myself a soft top beamer, he fulfilled a childhood ambition to be an ice cream man by quietly spending his hard earned money on fully loaded ice cream van, which he spontaneously turned up to work in and started giving out free ice creams. He even used to drive around sleepy villages, distributing ice creams to kids astonished at being handed a 99 by Ron Weasley. That is like the cutest thing I've ever heard. I wish I got rich and bought an ice cream truck, but I definitely won't. So another thing that he mentions about Rupert is that he is just always gung-ho to help when he can. One thing that Tom Felton realizes about Draco and the characters that they portray in Harry Potter is that these characters are so important. The actor's presence makes a difference in people's lives. So he can do acts of charity simply by showing up. It cheers up sick kids. He loves to buy a bunch of Christmas presents and go to the hospital to distribute them. And one day he asks Rupert Grant if he wants to come too. And he's like, it is this complicated thing where there is a lot that we can do, but because there's so much we can do, when do you stop? And so he's like, it would have been easy for this to just be too much for him. It would have been easy to say, no, I'm busy that day. But he showed up and he was there. And I think that's really cute that they do those things. Then we get to his part about Daniel Radcliffe and Harry Potter. He really respects Daniel Radcliffe's commitment to acting, and it's really inspirational to him. He says that Daniel Radcliffe was really the first one to dive in on the craft, and it helped him really discover who Draco was as a character because watching Daniel Radcliffe dive into the motivations and the importance of his character, it helped him realize that Draco was just Harry in a different situation, which I think really comes through in the movies. I don't know if it's the writing or if it's the acting, but... Draco Malfoy was the boy who had no choice, dominated by his overbearing father, coerced by Death Eaters, cowed into his fear of his life by Voldemort. His actions were not his own. So he talks about the boy who lived and the boy who had no choice. And then the fact that later in the final movie, you get to see them really making these choices. The final movie is about choice and that 
I think drives a lot of it for him. I didn't know about this scene. I guess I missed a lot of it. He talks about killing Dumbledore. I'm like, Snape killed Dumbledore. Who killed Dumbledore? Stop Stop saying Bumblebore. I don't know, man. It's a lot of syllables that don't make any freaking sense. Anyway, but apparently there's a scene where Harry's disfigured and Draco has to say if he knows if it's him or not. And he said that he chose in his mind that he did in fact recognize Harry but that he says it's not him. He's finally taking ownership of choice. The one time he really has a choice free of deathly consequence. Yeah. So there's a little fact for you guys that I really butchered because I don't really know what happened. If you guys were Potter heads and you're upset by that, sorry. I'm not in your brain. I don't know. You can't live your life saying, well, if I know something, then everyone should know it. I know. It's just hard for me because I feel like Harry Potter is one that it's like crazy for me to believe someone of like our exact age group doesn't know it because it was everywhere. It was in the books and it was in the movies. And then if I had a conversation with somebody, they'd be like, oh, Harry Potter. And I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I didn't read it. I guess it. it's like shocking to me to have missed every single Harry Potter weekend on ABC Family. <laughs> it's fine. I'm just saying it like fell everywhere to me. Can I say, I did know that Snape killed Dumbledore. Okay. But I didn't know it so strongly that when he said, and then it was my turn to kill Dumbledore, that felt shocking. But I was like, oh, I guess that's who killed Dumbledore. And then when he's like, and then Snape killed Dumbledore, I was like, I don't understand. And then I was like, oh, maybe he died and came back to life. Yeah, I will say this book is a difficult read if you don't really understand Harry Potter because it was written for the fans. There is a lot of shorthand in this book that I think would have been very confusing if I didn't remember the plot of every Harry Potter movie and book. So then he talks about the rest of the characters that were important to him that weren't necessarily lead actors that had an impact on him. He talks about working with Crabbe and Goyle and how they tried to be as professional as possible, but it was hard when you're just like a group of teenage boys on set and they had really similar interests. He talks a lot in this movie about how they were really into West Coast rap music. And I think that it's a real badge of honor for him to be very knowledgeable about American rap. The other thing he says is that in his trailer, him and the actors who played Crab and Goyle would make mixtapes that he still has. It was about as hardcore gangster rap as three white English Slytherin boys could spit out. Bury those, destroy those. Bury them. He goes, I still have them and I still listen to them. And I'm just like, they're going to leak. Blackmail. He also talks about how Neville Longbottom was the only person who was miscast because every year he got hotter and hotter. Is that true? Yeah. It's shocking. He talks about being around just some of the greatest actors that have ever existed and how interesting it was. There was so much to learn from them. He talks about seeing Gary Oldman walking around on set and assuming he was a janitor because no one walked with an air of importance. And that was really important to him and really formative. But one time he saw Gary Oldman walking by and he says, I squeaked my shoes on the polished concrete floor and gave him a thumbs up and said, top work, mate, because he thought he was the guy who cleaned the floors. And then he found out it was Gary Oldman and he looked like an idiot. And here's the thing that this made me realize. He talks about the level of professionalism and respect that he witnessed on set from the older actors. And he says, later when I was working on movies in America, I learned that that's not always the case. People do not always approach with respect there are actors who will show up an hour late just to prove a point and i think that this is another problem with child actors in the united states and one of the problems that we see so often in the way they grow up it's not just that kids shouldn't have jobs which i still don't think is the case but it's the example set for them by the adults they're around when all of the adults you're around are a like parents who exploit you and b other actors who are acting like dickheads all the time and then c crew who are yes men to your insane childhood antics. That's one of the factors I think in them growing up so unhinged. 
Whereas if you grow up on a set where all of your mentors are respectful and set a good example, I think that that is a huge reason why the Harry Potter kids don't seem bonkers. All of the biggest scandals were like Emma Watson drinking a beer. Daniel Radcliffe did a nude play. I also think the right to be in the next one helped keep them in line. He talks about that a lot. He got caught smoking weed one time and it didn't get out, but he was like, oh no, what if Warner Brothers finds out? They all had this idea that I lucked into the coolest job for the decade. You do not want to be not asked back because some people did not get asked back. He talks about working with both Dumbledores. I think getting a sort of thumbs up from two extremely respected actors was big for his confidence. The first Dumbledore one time took him to the side and he didn't say much, but he said, you're good. And that was the only thing he had ever said to him. Tom Felton's like, I did let that stroke my ego, but I know that it was based on nothing, but... I did take it in. It was nice. The second Dumbledore was his big scene was with him when he fakely tries to kill him, which is very confusing. He says, I killed him. So you could see my confusion when it turns out he did not. That was his only scene where he really rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And most of his scenes were with other kids, but this was his only scene where it was just him and adults. And so he went in as serious as he could be. And he took it deadly seriously and memorized all his lines. Then when he showed up, no matter what he did, he kept fudging them. And so they go and take a smoke And they go out and it's him in his Dumbledore outfit, Draco in his Draco outfit. Also, he says when he would go have a smoke with Dumbledore, he would put his beard in a sock. And he's like, I think it was to keep it straight, but it also might have been so he didn't accidentally light his beard on fire. But so he's like apologizing. I'm sorry, Michael. I do know the lines. I don't know why I keep messing them up. I'm just a bit all over the shop right now. He kindly waved my apology away, but I was on edge and the apologies kept coming. Really, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I can't get the lines right. So he smiled and said, dear boy, do you have any idea how much they pay me per day? At this rate, if you keep fucking it up, I'll have a new Ferrari by next week. He was absolutely deadpan. No hint of a joke. You keep doing what you're doing, son. And so then he went in and like nailed the part. So on set, you have to have a chaperone when you're underage that is like with you that's supposed to be timing to make sure you're only on set for three hours, which is the allotted time that kids are allowed to be on set. They could do more than three hours a day, but at a time. They need a break. And then also they had to have a certain amount of time clocked in the schoolroom. And he said they time your tutoring time with a stopwatch. So the minute you pick up your pencil, they start timing you. And even if four minutes later, you're called back to set, they count that four minutes. For a while, his grandpa was his on-set chaperone. His mom did it for a year. And then his older brother was doing it. This... Went fine, I suppose. (laughs) He says his brother did not care about chaperoning him. He would take him fishing every night. So they would fish all night. He wouldn't sleep. He would go right back to set and start working at 6 a.m. His brother would sleep in his trailer all day. And then at night, be like, all right, I just woke up. Let's go fishing. Yeah, his brother taught him how to roll joints. So this is the year that he starts smoking weed and not sleeping, which I don't know. I guess it sounds fun when you're 14 years old. His brother just didn't care what he was eating. So he would just eat Coca-Cola and chocolate. And his brother would say, fill your boots mate drink as much of that shit as you like he loved the guy that played his dad on set he said he was one of the most on and off people of all time and when they were off he was so loving and then he would be his dad on stage and be viciously cruel to him yeah and he said that the fact that he could just turn it on and off at the flick of a switch was so impressive and also really helped with their acting with each other because he's like okay I could see the switch flip and then I would be terrified of him and as Draco I was supposed to be terrified of my dad I just never knew what he was going to do and how he was going to say it and how mean he was going to be and it was so nice because once the switch flipped back I knew that I could trust him and that he was a nice guy but when it was on it was on and it made his Draco performance so good because he was petrified of him and then he talks about working with ralph fines i think that's not how you say it fiance i think it's like ray fines ray fine riffin riffin okay then he talks about work with voldemort in the flesh 
And the scene where he hugs him, I guess that's a big deal. They did it 60 times. Alan was in character the entire time and he was literally afraid. And when he called him forth, he didn't know it was going to happen. And then they hugged and he said, in England, it was received as like chilling. And for some reason in the US, they always laugh. And he goes, I don't know why they think it's funny, but cool. So he talks about finishing up Harry Potter. And as we learned from the borrowers, he is not good with the ending of things. When he's in his car being driven home on the last day of shooting, he was just bawling and bawling and bawling. But then he acknowledges the fact that he maintained a fairly normal life throughout shooting. And he says, blending in always seemed better to me than being recognized. In that respect, I was lucky. I'd managed to avoid making Harry Potter the most prominent part of my life. And he really acknowledges how hard it must have been for Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant, and Hermione. Emma Watson, because Harry Potter had been their whole life for so many years. They were not in regular school. They did not have friends and activities outside of Harry Potter for the most part. So once it ended, he's like, that must have been impossible. People might find this difficult to believe, but it's true. In fact, counterintuitively, the attention I've attracted because of my involvement with Potter has increased almost beyond recognition since the films have ended. Back then, I could easily walk along the street, even with luminous blonde hair without being recognized. But now it's much more popular. I do wonder if that's because of social media and stan culture. He thinks it's because it still resonates with so many people that there's younger people every year who are added to the fold. And then also they just keep building out the worlds of it, right? Like they have Harry Potter Universal Studios. But I also do wonder if with like social media, you're much more acutely aware of who everyone looks like. You're more aware of where they're at. I think being obsessed and getting that, like being clout adjacent is bigger. Yeah, I also do think that Draco culture has grown since the books. In the last couple of years, having a crush on Draco Malfoy has been a fad. So he talks about meeting his girlfriend on the set of Harry Potter. He pays her a lot of respect throughout this book. I don't think it's like that important to the rest of the story. I don't even understand what her job was. She was like the assistant to the stunt coordinators. He was 17. They started dating. Her name was Jade. She was very beautiful. She was the only person who wore makeup. You weren't allowed to wear makeup on set for some reason. No, she was an extra in one scene and you weren't supposed to wear makeup when you were an extra. But she didn't give a fuck. She was there to be hot and she was there to date one of the stars and she did. So good for her. Right after he finishes Harry Potter, he gets an offer to be in Rise of the Planet of the Apes and he's like, oh my God, I guess this is my future. I was just in the biggest franchise. Now I'm going to be in another big franchise. They just offered it to me. I guess this is the plan, baby doll. Let's hit it. With only the formality of a phone call from my agent, I would be whisked from one major film set to another. I thought this is it. This is what the future is going to be. Turned out I was wrong. So this is like the first and only, I think, outright offer that he gets. I don't know how he did in Planet of the Apes, but it doesn't seem like great. He didn't build enough buzz to keep getting offers. And I don't know that he wanted it. He really goes back and forth on like how he felt about making acting the rest of his life for a while. So he does Planet of the Apes. It's his first big Hollywood movie. And he's like, Hollywood movies are crazy. You could eat anything you want. It was the first time I'd ever been offered a major part without auditioning for it. And it wouldn't happen again for a long time. If I had been left to my own devices, it might as well have been my last film. I lacked the drive to assert myself and fulfill the potential that, according to Jason and others, I'd shown at the end of the Potter Project. I even found myself wondering if I wouldn't be happier ditching the acting to become a professional angler. That would again be a carp catcher. But his girlfriend Jade is like, no, 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 keep at it. And she really helps him. And they build a rig in his house and move to LA and just start doing auditions all the time. Yeah. And then Alan Radcliffe, Daniel Radcliffe's dad, gave him good advice. Find yourself a good agent. Go to LA and put yourself in as many rooms as possible. So I did just that. So he's kind of shocked that he's able to get a big agent in Los Angeles right away. And it's like, you had a resume. It's not like me and Claire being like, 
I could do it. Sign me. Like you'd been in a couple of the biggest movies of the decade. If you were able to do it when you were seven, best believe you're gonna be able to do it now. He goes in, he's auditioning like crazy. He's not even sure if this is what he wants, but eventually he like learns to love the process of auditioning, which I think we've learned is the only way to truly succeed as an actor is to like not hate auditioning. But of course, things aren't always smooth sailing. In LA, life was good. Everything was bigger, brighter, better. We found a tidy wooden bungalow in West Hollywood, painted white with a small garden and fence. Work started to pick up. He started making friends. Things were going good. And then he suddenly started getting recognized. And at first, it seemed cool. He's finally living the life of a celebrity. He had never really done it before because he'd just been a student and a kid. And also in England, I think they're much chiller. He said, in England, nobody cared if you were famous. If they did, they usually pointed it and muttered to their friend or at best they'd come over and ask, were you that wizard geezer? You know, the one from the thing plus a sarcastic (laughs) comment more often than not. In LA, as my face and name started to become better known, the initial coolness faded away and suddenly it seemed that almost everybody cared that I was famous in a way that massaged my ego like never before. So he starts taking advantage of the ability to get a last minute reservation whenever he wants. He gets free clothes, becomes a BMW VIP. He starts to really revel in the famous guy life. My world became one of crazy opportunity, elaborate nights out, and there's no other way of putting it, cool free shit. I enjoyed it. Jade enjoyed it. I mean, who wouldn't? But there was something inauthentic about the life I was leading. I realized that more often than not, I didn't want to go to this premiere or that fancy restaurant or whatever Caribbean island we had earmarked for our next getaway. I missed my old life. If you tell a person he's great enough times, he'll start to believe it. If you blow enough smoke up someone's arse, sooner or later, they'll start breathing it in. It's almost inevitable. Something strange had started to happen. Placed into an environment where people were desperate to do things for me, I started to lose the ability to do things and think things for myself. Having allowed my newly appointed LA team to encourage me with my acting career and expose me to this new Hollywood lifestyle, I felt like I had gone a step further and outsourced my ability to make any kind of decision or have any opinion of my own. If people remind you often of how lucky you are and that a certain way of living is cool, you start to believe it even if you don't feel that way deep down. Suddenly, your critical faculties are turned to jelly and you stop believing your own person. Bit by bit, I wasn't myself anymore. The more immersed I became in the smoke and mirrors of Hollywood, the less chance I had to meet people who didn't know who I was and more to the point, didn't care. I craved an escape from the version of myself I was becoming. I craved human contact with people who cared nothing for the red carpet lifestyle. I craved the old me. I craved authenticity. I found it in a bar called Barney's Beanery. The company I was keeping in LA, it didn't translate. Everyone took themselves too seriously and everyone took me too seriously. So he just starts drinking a lot. And I guess very quickly it becomes a problem. Yeah, it becomes just like a nightly situation where every night he would go to Barney's Beanery, have a couple drinks, have a couple shots, and then go home. He started stumbling in late and unkempt to auditions and just really did not have his head in the game. And one day he gets a call from his agent and they're like, hey, we have a big thing for you. Come in tomorrow. Don't even worry about it. So he comes in first thing in the morning expecting an offer only role, like something's just on the table for him. He gets in. It's an intervention. It's his manager, a couple people in his life, and Jade. And he is livid because he says, well, last night I was at the bar speaking openly and honestly with basically strangers. And here I am today with the people I trusted most in the world. And you guys have been lying to me. You guys planned this whole situation without even telling me. It turns out that Jade had not planned it. His managers and agents and entertainment lawyer had planned it. And then Jade was told that morning. I do find that odd. Yeah, that his team was just like, we've got to get a handle on this thing. Like how many out of control addicts have we read books of that it seems like no one ever tried anything? I guess I do sort of think the problem was a little bit bigger than he let on in this book. Yeah, and I think he only talks about the drinking, but it seems like there was also drugs. Out of nowhere, he's like, I go to a bar. And then two pages later, he's like, there was an intervention. And it's like, okay, so what were those two pages? How many days do those two pages represent? He says, everyone read him a letter. 
One letter, though, hit the hardest. It was written by the person in the room who I knew the least. My lawyer, whom I'd barely ever met face to face, spoke with quiet honesty. Tom, he said, I don't know you very well, but you seem like a nice guy. All I want to tell you is that this is the 17th intervention I've been to in my career. 11 of them are now dead. Don't be the 12th. How odd that the only thing that got through to him was this guy that he straight up doesn't know being like, listen, whenever someone needs to fill out an extra chair at an intervention, I'm their guy. So I kind of know my interventions. <laughs> so they had already set it up that there's like an intervenist there who immediately brought him to a rehab. He can't go home. It's the usual stuff. They're like, you got to go right now. And if you don't, we won't represent you anymore. I wonder how Jade felt about all this. Me too. So he had to go away for 30 days. They won't let him pick up clothes. He says, can I bring my guitar? And they're like, no, this is the weirdest thing to me. The journey to Malibu took about an hour, a long, solemn hour as we sat side by side in silence. As Malibu approached, the interventionist turned to me and said, do you want to stop and get a final beer before we check you in? I guess he was trying to make things easier for me, but at the time I couldn't fathom his question. Everyone had just told me I had a problem with substances. I didn't agree with them, not at the time, but why would I stop for a beer and make it look as if they were right all along? No, I don't want to stop for a fucking beer, I told him. Was he kidding? No, I feel like that happens a lot. I think that a lot of times they'll be like, can I use one more time on the way? And they let them do that. Okay. I guess I find it odd to like suggest it. So he goes to the rehab. He gets detoxed. He says it only takes 12 hours before he's blowing sober and so he's like clearly i wasn't that fucked up i only had to detox for like a minute and then he goes to do the fill out for him the nurse recorded my answers then she said would you like an alias what do you mean i asked well while you're here you have to wear a name badge if you'd prefer we can use an alias like bob or sam i twigged she'd recognize me and i suppose she was trying to be sensitive to my situation i was in no mood though to be handled if people recognize me from Harry Potter films, it will be because of my face. It won't be because of what's written on my name tag. You could write Mickey fucking mouse on my chest and they're not going to think I'm him. I honestly agree with him. Me I could too. not have come up with his name if my life depended on it before this book. Tom Felton could be an alias. <laughs> he spends a day in rehab before he just starts smoking and looking out at the land and decides to start walking. And he walks and walks and he finds himself past the premises. No one chases after him. He just keeps walking. He climbs over the fence. He keeps going. He realizes he's near the Pacific Coast Highway. So he crosses the highway to get to the ocean and he jumps in the ocean and then decides to start walking back to West Hollywood to go to Barney's Beanery. And he's miles and miles and miles away. I mean, he's in Malibu. So he was like walking across the ocean front and it wasn't always sand. So sometimes he was walking across rocky jetties and getting all ripped up. He makes it sound like he was emerging from war. And he finally sees the light of a gas station. So he goes to the gas station and he asks if anyone has a lighter because he still has some cigarettes on him that he tried to keep dry. And then they were like, no, but do you want a water? And he was like, yes, please. So he takes the water and then the guy offers him some money. He goes, where are you going? Do you want to just enact the scene? Yeah. I'll be the cashier at the gas station. You be Draco. Yeah. Where are you going? West Hollywood. A long way. Yeah. You don't have any money? I shook my head. The man smiled. He took out his wallet, opened it up and pulled out what I could see was his last $20 bill. Take it. I stared again at him at the 20. I'm not a wealthy man. I don't have much money. I don't have a big house. I don't have a fancy car, but I have my wife. I have my children and I have my grandchildren. And that means I am a rich man, a very rich man. Are you a rich man? My reflex reaction was to burst into rueful laughter. Rich? I'm a millionaire. And here I am asking you for a bottle of water and taking your last $20. I thought to myself, but did not say out loud, 
I'm not rich at all. Not like you. So he keeps saying, I'll come back and give you the money. And the guy's like, no, it's no problem. Take the $20. Just pass it along to someone else who needs it. So then he just keeps walking and he gets to the next gas station. At the next gas station, he finds an Uber driver who is willing to, for $20 cash, drive him from Malibu to West Hollywood. He gets to Barney's Beanery at 1.30 in the morning, right at last call. And the bouncer is like, you're late, but I'll let you have another drink. Because he knows the bouncer. The bouncer is his friend, Nick, because he's at this bar all the time. The bartender pours him a drink and he decides to not take it. So he goes back outside and he's like, can you drive me back to my house? I don't have keys. I don't have a wallet. I don't have my phone. Nick is like, just come home with me. Okay. So they go back to Nick's house and they spend the whole night talking. They talk until morning. And by the end of it, he realizes he's not in love with Jade anymore. Yeah. So he goes home. He realizes I'd been too reliant on her for my well-being and even for my opinions. It had blinded me to the uncomfortable truth that my feelings for her had changed. So he calls her. I mean, he's escaped rehab at this point. People are worried about him. She's relieved that he's okay. But he talks to her and says, there's nothing I wouldn't do for her for the rest of her life. And I meant it, but I'd lost my way and I needed to find it again. She accepted my explanation with a grace I probably didn't deserve. And with that, our relationship was over. If that is how it went down, I find this quite respectful. I spent the night searching for my way back home and I'd come to the realization that I wasn't there yet. The intervention had been upsetting. It had angered and confused me, but I was beginning to understand that it came from the right place and I needed to seek some help. I was going to do it for myself. So reading his intervention moment, I was like, there's no way this is going to stick because the way that they're forcing him into something when he doesn't think that anything he's done has been a problem is not going to do anything. He went into rehab saying, I don't think I have a problem. And he's there with people who have much more serious addictions. I would say it's like more serious, but he's like everyone there also had a problem with alcohol and that was like their secondary thing. And he's like, I did legitimately feel like my problem was very different than their problems. And I do think that that can be true. It does seem like nobody had just said to him, hey man, I'm worried about your drinking. Have you thought about cutting back? Like there was no first preliminary step. Yeah. And obviously we don't know that for sure. Maybe people had said it. He had six months of drinking too much. And then they were like, all right, go to rehab or we'll cut you off. I do wonder what would have happened if somebody had been like, slow down. Yeah. Grab the wall. Okay. So I guess it was fruitful in that he realizes that he should get help. He says, I didn't believe that my substance use warranted the intervention, but I'm glad it happened because it briefly took me away from the world that was making me unhappy and allowed me to get some clarity. I grew to realize that everyone in the room that day of my intervention was there because they cared about me, not my career, not my value. They cared about me. I wonder if that's true from the entertainment lawyer and a room full of nobody but your ex-girlfriend and your employing team. Anyway, so he decides to seek out help on his own. He goes to a rehab that's like a little bit more like a wilderness hang. Yeah, he said the Malibu one, which was $40,000 a month. He did not feel like he felt in. It felt like a lot of adult children of trust funds. Here, it was much more people who were just like needed help and were low key. It was only 15 people. Yeah, they needed a reprieve from society. So he goes there. He does break a handful of rules. He sneaks into the girls dorm at one point and gets caught. And he's like, listen, it was the first time I've been single since I was 17. He gets in trouble. The next day he goes out to do some voiceover work. So someone from the rehab drives him out to do a quick voiceover job and back. And when he gets back, they're like, you're kicked out. So I also wonder what other rules he broke because they say he broke the rules one too many times and he was out on his ass. And they said, I was disrupting the other's recoveries. I had to go. I spent the following week in a daze. I spent time in this whole new world with a group of people I cared about deeply. Suddenly I couldn't be a part of that group and I missed them. But those three weeks have been life-changing. I realized that before I had been existing in a state of absolute numbness, it wasn't that I was ready to jump off a bridge. It's that jumping off a bridge and winning the lottery seemed like equivalent outcomes. I had no interest in anything good or bad. You could have told me that I was going to be the next James Bond and I wouldn't have cared. Now I had my emotions back and they were firing on all cylinders. Some emotions were good, some were bad, but either were better than none at all. 
So he starts giving back to the community. He takes up volunteering. He becomes really good friends with this guy who is kind of a wacky Venice Beach guy. And he learns to leave every environment better than when you found it. And he says he has three great years of just like waking up, swimming in the ocean, helping the homeless. And then one day, a couple of years later, the numbness returned without any warning with no particular trigger. It was a shock. There was no rhyme or reason to it. I just suddenly and unexpectedly found it almost impossible to find reasons to get out of bed. If I hadn't had Willow, his dog, to look after, I probably wouldn't have emerged from under the covers very much at all. I endured that feeling for a while, telling myself this will pass before accepting that it simply wasn't going to. I decided that I had to do something proactive to stop myself feeling or not feeling like this anymore. I needed help and I was going to do something about it. I'm not alone in having these feelings. Just as we all experience physical ill health at some stage in our lives, so we all experience mental ill health too. There is no shame in that. It's not a sign of weakness. And so he talks about this kind of being the reason he wrote this book. As we know from before, he's his brothers have suffered with mental illness as well. And I think that the fact that he's writing about this is really important. I think specifically he says Americans have an easier time talking about their feelings but the Brits tend to be much more reserved. So I think for him to say this for his British peoples might be very helpful too. So here it goes. I'm no longer shy of putting my hands up and saying I'm not okay. To this day, I never know which version of myself I'm going to wake up to. It can happen with the smallest chores or decisions, brushing my teeth, hanging up a towel. Should I have tea or coffee? Overwhelm me. Sometimes I find the best way to get through the day is by setting myself tiny achievable goals that take me from one minute to the next. If you sometimes feel like that, you are not alone. And I urge you to talk to somebody about it. It's easy to bask in the sun, not so easy to enjoy the rain, but one can't exist without the other. The weather always changes. Feeling of sadness and happiness deserve equal mental screen time. It can be 30 hours over an entire year talking to someone about your feelings or 30 minutes to set positive intentions for the day or 30 seconds to breathe and remind yourself that you are here and you are now. If rehab is nothing more than time devoted to looking after yourself, how can that not be time well spent? After that, he talks about now he lives in London He's in a play on the West End. He really loves it. I think another thing he realizes is that he needs structure in his life. I know my life has been a fortunate one. I will always be grateful to and proud of the films that gave me so many opportunities. A life where love, family, and friendship are at the forefront. It's not lost on me. The importance of these is one of the great lessons of the Harry Potter stories. The realization of this is what makes me a very rich man indeed. Okay. Thoughts. Cutie patootie. I found, yeah, sweet. I honestly thought hearing about extreme fame and then like a little bit less extreme fame from his perspective those few sentences he wrote about emma watson's fame i really got the sense of what a freaking prison it could be and it made me think about the taylor swift song anti-hero the monster on a hill line because of that song we've been thinking a lot we've been talking about it on patreon what it's like when your fame becomes something that is a hindrance to everyone around you. I thought he did a good job showing how hard it is and how weird it is to make that choice before you have gotten your period. Yeah, even in his own family, the fact that his brothers are affected by his and his mom's choice to pursue acting. I think that he does a really great job of having compassion for everyone around him. You know, he's led by some measure an easy life, by some measure a difficult life. And he is willing to look at both measuring sticks with equal value and give credit where credit is due. I think it's interesting that because both of his older brothers suffered with depression, like one of them was hospitalized. I wonder if that affected his ability to blame his experience. Do you know what I mean? I think something we like criticize a lot of our memoirs of is they're like, if this one thing hadn't happened that way, I wouldn't have ended up like this. And he's very much like, 
I was predisposed genetically to struggle with my mental health. It happened to my two brothers. You know, my childhood had its ups and downs just like any childhood, but this is kind of something that I couldn't have run from no matter what. And I think that that leaves you in a much more optimistic place than saying, well, my parents got divorced, so I was doomed from the get-go. Yeah, can I also read a line that I think we skipped over when he's talking about his time spent at Barney's Beanery? Drinking became a habit at the best of times when you're drinking to escape a situation even more so. The habits spilled out of the bar and from time to time onto set. The alcohol, though, wasn't the problem. It was the symptom. The problem was deeper, and it drew me almost nightly to Barney's. I'd sit at the bar, a beer constantly in front of me, maybe something stronger. That one part, the alcohol, though, wasn't the problem. It was a symptom. I think that that's really important in his situation. A lot of times we see people, as soon as there's one inkling of an abnormality, they say, well, this is the problem, and I will solve it. I will get in front of this one issue. Obviously, drinking was a problem for him, and he's willing to acknowledge that. But the fact that he goes even one step deeper and says, why am I drinking? What brought me here? I think explains almost everything. I liked it. It has fun little hairy wizarding tidbits. I think this book is an interesting reflection of us that we don't fucking ask for that much. Just a modicum of self-awareness and generosity of spirit. And he delivered that. And that's literally all we've ever asked. Honest, vulnerable, and sweet. If you're a Harry Potter fan, I think it'll give you everything you were looking for. How many apples would you give this wizard? Four. Four out of five. I would give 4.2. Beautiful. Four plus a nibble. Four plus a slice. Bye, guys. Oh, my God. Check out the Patreon. If you're ever wondering what we're talking about, we post it on Instagram now because now we record like a week out. Oh, this week we are definitely going to be talking about Selena Gomez's docuseries. Yeah. So we are going to be doing Selena Gomez's docuseries, other things, anything you guys ask. We love you so much. Last week was a warm to the wise. So if that interests you, check that out. And we love you. Thank you so much.